This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and we are at the holy shaboli 58th minute of Michael Mann's 170-minute crime saga from 1995 Heat. And today, I'm joined by another fan in this extended family of Heat uh, obsessives. Uh, His name is Daniel Ziffer. He's a business reporter um, for the ABC. So right now, he's writing about people like Roger Van Zantz um, uh, in the Australian public eye um, for the ABC News. Um, He's done a stack of other things as a journo. Um, He was an entertainment journalist. He worked for ABC Radio Melbourne. Um, He's been a sort of foreign correspondent and also has been at the age where he sat next to, in the newsroom, another alumni of this very show, Philippa Hawker. So I'm very thrilled to welcome Dan to the show. Dan, welcome to One Heat Minute. Uh, Blake, my pleasure. I'm absolutely delighted to be here with uh, you and with everyone listening. <laughs> Look, it's it's uh, uh, what I say, as I said at the beginning, this lovely extended family of One Heat Minute happens where people f- hear about the premise of the show and then sometimes, like Dan, he hears about one of his former colleagues and a friend of a friend who was on the show and he's like, this show is the kind of show that I'm into. And look, I thought, well, why not get Dan along? And unfortunately for Dan, I've brought him in at the one of the scariest, most disturbing minutes of the entire film. So Dan, in advance, there's no delightful, you know, and not not yet. There may be a near future, but there's no delightful high scene. There's no, you know, uh, great uh, Pacino gif-worthy dialogue. We just start this at 57 minutes on the dial of the 58th minute, and there it is, Kevin Gage's scary, weird face looking staring daggers at a potential victim i'm sorry in advance that is absolutely fine i did look up the minute i was like you have got to be kidding me (laughs) this is the most menacing uh and for all the ups and downs of the film this is one of the uh cruelest and most menacing uh minutes as wayne grove uh kind of stalks his prey i mean the thing i was thinking about when i first started uh looking at this minute is we haven't seen him for half an hour yes so he's disappeared to the diner he's gone like in fact the last thing you see of him is nothing which is just the ground at macaulay's feet he's gone and and what's even more fantastic is right then and there when macaulay's in at the culmination of that minute macaulay's staring into nothing he's staring down you know, this weird path, this weird tree, this darkness. And there's Wayne Grove just gone. And and and, and uh, maybe I've gone insane because I've watched this movie too many times, but I'm like, this is where this movie kind of touches this weird supernatural evil. And it's only now, like especially on the freeze frame, if you guys are playing along at home, which I hope that some of you do, um, and you're at 57 minutes on the original theatrical cut of Heat, it is Kevin Gage's face as creepy and as satisfied 
as you could ever hope for right now. And and he's been already perverse, leaning in, this really weird and awkward leaning performance up into this minute. And, you know, he says the line right before we watch this, you don't know what this is. And I've left you with that. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Dan. <laughs> it's absolutely, it, is, it is a really terrifying moment. I, I, I've always thought that bit after the diner where he disappears, you've seen such professionalism from Neil's crew. Uh, and, and even the detectives note this, that when once they'd shot one witness, they're like, that's it, and they ice the next two. Yes. Uh, this is the first moment where I think for Neil and the crew, they start to see things are running off the rails. You know, yeah. th- things are not going to the very precise way that they run their operation. You know, it's funny about that. I haven't, I haven't thought about, I haven't thought about what's not said at the end of that scene. Like, and you put it right. Imagine how many other guys walked out of a diner with them before Wayne Grow and was just like, See you, bro. You're toast. You know, you're out of here. There's no more. There's no more guy. Um, but with Wayne Grow, it's in that moment that they're just all, all out of sorts, and and it's like a sign. But they just don't. They're not reading. You know, up up until this point of the film, they're not reading any of that as a sign. They're like, oh, we'll get back around to him. And it, but for me, it feels like you're totally right. It's like, oh, this is. This is really unusual for this crew, for this to have happened, which is all the more mm. why it's so disturbing to Neil himself. He's like, what the hell? How did we lose this guy? How did? How could he have possibly gotten away from us? It is, um, when we look at this minute and, and think about the, the menacing nature of it and the really dark and graphic, uh, you know, violence that is hinted at, you don't actually see it. Yes. Um, and I do want to take you back. I was I was so obsessive about this film when it came out. I told everyone, everyone I knew to go and see it. <laughs> My brother was at boarding school in Melbourne because we grew up in the country. He was at boarding school. And every two weeks, my grandparents, uh, who would have been well into their 70s and 80s at this point, would spring him out and say, what, what do you want to do? And usually they'd go to McDonald's or, you know, they'd go to the park and have a run around or, you know, go see a movie. And he said, I want to go see Heat. And they're like, oh, we haven't heard about this. Let's go have a look. And they talked about it until their dying days. Oh, my God. Uh, not, not in a good way. Uh, they didn't enjoy the film as much as my brother did and certainly not as much as I did. But they took, uh, very bravely, took their 15-year-old grandson to see this insane crime epic. And they're still talking about it. We're still talking about the, the heist scene in the middle Anytime you mention going to the movies in the kind of 15 years after that. Talk about an impact. What a good older brother. Dan, your brother was 15. How much older were you than him at the time? couple of years. I would have been that 18. I would have started. Yeah. Years. yeah. So just you, a couple of years and I was couple, telling you, look, look at that you per- see this before. Look at that perfect seed you planted in your younger brother and then dragged your poor grandparents <laughs> along to one of the most insane crime epics of all time. And also for them, what would have probably frightened them to death is if they were in that theatre is that, you know, there's they're, they're filming the real gunshot sounds on set and they're playing them. So the EQ in that particular scene would have just jolted them to their bones, which is you and I are lucky enough. You were just at the uh, the Astor. I was at Palace Central. You're in Melbourne. I was in Sydney at the awesome American Essentials Film Festival viewings of the of, of Heat. 
Um, and yeah, it still shakes you to your bones in beautiful digital sound. You know, I can't even imagine on those 35 mil prints what that was like in a little wooden theater. It would have just shaken the whole theater down almost. Oh my goodness. Well, I saw it at Village in Melbourne, which doesn't exist anymore. There's very few city uh, cinemas in the city of Melbourne anymore. We saw it on this ginormous screen, probably the largest in Australia pre-IMAX. I think I saw, um, I think I've seen movies choice. there. I think I saw movies there when I was a kid. I was down there of traveling with family and stuff. Yeah, and my, my mum, uh, for better or worse, probably worse uh, looking at me now, um, used to send me off to the movies to be babysat, you know, while she went shopping. So, you know, here you go. Here's money for a ticket, buy a ticket. go. And I just remember like, yeah, it felt like the biggest cinema I'd ever seen. So it's interesting to hear you as, as like a, a couple of years older than me going, no, it really was. It was huge. That village cinema. I remember it in great detail. No, it was fantastic. Interestingly, we both went, uh, I think for you, the first time you saw it on a cinema screen was most recently at this festival. Yeah. Um, I'd seen it on a cinema screen before. But to go back uh, and see it, I, the bit I found interesting were the things that jumped out at me. Yes. And uh, obviously I love the film. That was never going to be in, in any doubt. But the first thing that I thought about as I went in was, could this work today? Yeah. Or has law enforcement technology got so much better that the, the premise wouldn't work? You know, you'd have to, in the same way as the film No Country for Old Men was set in the 70s yeah. to get around some yeah. of the problems of, hey, well, if everyone had mobile phones, you'd just call, you know, like you'd, you'd sort these problems out. Um, and the thing that got me was in the first scene, Neil goes down from the railway station through an emergency ward and then out to get the ambulance that they're going to use as the getaway car and I was like fantastic beautiful scene mate you've walked past 40 CCTV cameras <laughs> yes. if this is today in, in today all of 40 CCTV are, cameras especially in a hospital um, and the pictures are so good set with CCTV that if you see a still of someone and you know them even vaguely like well that's Barry you know like this <laughs> There's no doubt that, like, oh, it's it's a man of, you know, six foot height with a beard. You're like, no, no, that's Barry, like, yeah. clearly, you know. Um, so that was, the, that was the first element that jumped out. And the second one was uh, I noticed it because there's amazing performances from women in the film. Uh, it's particularly Ashley Judd, who I think is incredible. And obviously Diane Venora, who went on to do The Insider after that, also incredible in it. Um, but there's not a lot. No. And I was reading the credits as they scrolled up and it links to this scene because the fourth woman who actually has a surname in her character yeah. is is Hooker's mother. Yes, Hooker's mother indeed. It's, <laughs> but for 76 speaking roles... The, uh, and and for, the, for 76 speaking roles, I think it does... It's, it's one of those movies where... It, it stands up, and you're a Michael Mann fan. So before we even get into this minute, I think what what really resonates, what's weird, and not not a lot of people admit it. Um, and I'm I'm blessed to have someone like Manola Dargis on the show, who's you know the chief film critic for the New York Times, and she talked about she's like Blake. Uh, Michael Mann is a hopeless romantic, and she's like if you've seen any of his films, and she's like Last of the Mohicans, Miami Vice, Heat, very much to a certain extent. Um, 
collateral. Look at Jamie Foxx's romantic yeah. ideal, you know, looking at this little postcard. He, she's like, he's a hopeless romantic. So, you know, when some people think about his films, they think of these big, you know, things fueled by machismo, but they're also very romantic. So for me, I look at this and I go, for, for, for the breadth of the movie, those, you know, those four women or those, you know, those, those key four lady characters in this, in this film are so pound for pound powerful because they actually, you know, especially the, the, the mob wives, if we call them the gangster wives, they've all got lots of agency. They know exactly what they're doing and, um, as my, and, and they're the great negotiators. So yeah, no, I, th- I agree. I agree. It would be different this time. It would be different. Well, also, I mean, what they do is the tension in the film isn't just cat and mouse, as in like cops and robbers. It's within the two lead characters about the life they could have and the life that they do have. Yes. And and that is is what I've heard you talk so much about, about man and the conflict between professionalism and personal. And in both of them, uh, in Vincent and in Neil, you see this tension where they can see, uh, on one hand, with Vincent, this relationship, his third marriage, the downside of the third. Um, it's just like, one. yeah. And uh, with Neil, the potential for this, but he's so wary about it. You know, you, you, the, the contrast between his blank apartment and Edie's full life. You know, it, there's there's this amazing tension within the two men, uh, and that is part of what fuels you know their work together. I like how you, I really like how you put it there, Dan. Which is around it's the life they want and the life that they have, but it's like it's that exact tension of sometimes these guys are doing things by impulse that deny what they want or they, you know, they might say that they, they want to have this, you know, and for, for Vincent, it's like he, 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 you get a sense he does genuinely want to like have a marriage and feel connected (laughs) and he, and especially the way that he really wants to feel connected um, with Justine's daughter, like played by Natalie Portman. Like he really wants to feel connected and he wants, he wants to be interested and he wants to be this like good stepfather. And then like, He's absent for like three days, stays up for 48 or 52 hours. He's out on the road. And then he comes back. He won't even eat dinner with them. And then he bitches. He's like, oh, you're going to bitch at me because the chicken's cold? And you're like, mate, you, you just, you can't help you, who you are. Like it's, it's, that's the other thing is like they're themselves to a, to a, to a fault, which also makes them kind of endearing because they're so self-aware and they're so unself-aware at the same time. So it's that great. I think that's the great, what I'm noticing about all these characters is that they're so self-aware and they're so spot on. And then they're so also emotional. They're led by these like emotional cues of like, you know, even Don Breeden, who's played by Dennis Haysbert, like he's this guy who knows he should be doing the right thing. And he knows that he's going to have to suck it up. And then all it takes is just like one guy who looks at him like, you're worth it. You're worthwhile. You have a skill set. I respect you. I have a skill set. You have a skill set that's worthwhile. And he's like, oh, that feels so deeply satisfying. I'm just going to I'm just going to chuck everything out the window again. That's great. That's really great. It's well, it's it's I think it's, it's, it's in all of these movies. Can't escape themselves. Sorry, yes. they're saying it's it, part of they can't escape themselves. It's like when when Neil talks about New Zealand, he might as well say Pluto. Yes. Like it's it's, it's not a plausible <laughs> option. No. That he's going to they're going to escape away and he's the least New Zealand guy. He's 
catch. He's the least New Zealand guy you've ever seen in your life. Like speaking from an Aussie perspective, you're like if you met that guy in New Zealand, you're like, you are up to something, bro. You are not a real person who lives you're in New Zealand. Here, you are not. You are not around here, bro. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so funny. Look, um, this is what I love about this podcast. That it seems like the introductions and the discussions go so much longer now before we actually get to the real minute at hand. So I want to thank Dan. We've got to get into this minute. We're going to watch this really menacing Let's minute. Do it. Please have a listen along um, with Dan and I. You guys can listen. We're going to watch and we'll come back and talk. Rapers visiting with you. Where you been? She with Pelican Bay, New Folsom B Wing. Cowboy, looking for anything heavy. Billy Ricketts said, come see you. That is why I am here. Why don't you call this guy here? This guy's always putting guys on. There it is. The minute. Just watching it again now, I realise that he looks like Aquaman's evil brother. <laughs> Absolutely, he does. He is a slithering being. That's what he. And what's so disturbing is the. This is why it's such an incredible performance. Kevin Gage as Wayne Grove. It's just got so many nuances. He's sitting there, and it could be a really passive. Um, I don't want to say passive in the in the in the in the sense that it's he's not doing anything, but it could be just pure menace. It could just be one layer. And what's so terrifying is that it floats between this like very languid, sort of uh, uh, like almost seductive way that he's talking, wants to say nice things, and when he says that the the just in the mere seconds before we kick off this minute, he says, "You don't know what this is," and the whole scene shifts and then he says the Grim Reaper's visiting with you at the beginning of the scene that we're watching a couple seconds in we're going to scroll back to it in a second but when he says that he then leans in and smiles at her it's just as disturbing and creepy as it gets it's so and he and he just does it effortlessly and you I think you are dead right about I've just got a freeze frame up now for Dan and I to look at which is on uh 57 minutes, 13 seconds. There's this, he's just dead in the eyes in this freeze frame. He's completely just nothing. And I, 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 I didn't realize how powerful it was, but this, what, what he does um, coming up, he sort of got a deadness in his eyes. He leans in and then he smiles at her. And then it's about 57 minutes, 21 seconds. He grabs her hair, pulls her back out of the frame. And just as he does, boom, a bottle is topped at the bar. Like that is a, that's like an Edgar Wright match cut. Like that's like oh. an Edgar Wright match cut from like Shaun of the Dead that you would expect to have a laugh in, but instead your stomach just drops out of your torso and it's just gone. And you're like, oh, that is so messed up. 
It's it's the great. The violence, the violence of that sound, uh, as well as the action of the snapping of the bottle, is so impactful. And I even re-seeing it uh, recently, where he says that line about how he's the Grim Reaper. You know, you can tell that he's a very menacing guy and a clearly, you know, a very bad unit. But I remember just thinking, like, I'm sorry, what did he say? And then you kind of lean in and he leans in with that smile and then you're like, oh, my God. Like, I mean, obviously I've seen the film more than enough times to know what happens. But just the, the smile and the warmth with which he delivers this utterly line uh, is just incredible. And honestly, one of the other things I got from re-watching this film most recently is like, where, what happened to his career? Who, uh, I mean, he was in Con Air. He was in Con Air, which is his other big one. Um, and so, like, you know, this is what happens. Dan and I talked about it uh, off air. You know, this, you end up stalking everyone who's in heat that you don't know what happened to them because they're so amazing. You're like, where did their career, career go? So even even guys you might consider to be small actors like a Wes Studi or a Ted Levine, like those guys did huge movies and had long, enduring mm-hmm. careers. Um, and then you get a guy like... Um, Jerry Schwartz, uh, who, who's like just one of the bit players in the cop team, and he's like he's only ever done two movies ever. So you're like, what the hell happened? But another fantastic guest we've had on the show, Joe Lynch, tells me that unfortunately Kevin had um, in a in a in a Los Angeles universe that now has legalized marijuana um, that didn't back this time. Apparently he was uh, it was done for some a small drug count and then had to do some community service. And he actually did community service with like a publicist or something like that or an agent because they just sort of took care of him and said, oh, if you do community service, you need to clean floors, clean them in our office or whatever. And, you know, then we'll eventually get you back out there doing stuff. So he's still an actor, a smaller actor, but it's just he was operating on such an amazing level here. Like he, like Ted Levine was basically, they wanted Ted Levine for this and um, for this role because of the, the range they'd seen him deliver in, you know, as Buffalo Bill. And, and he, Ted Levine said to Michael Mann, please, I can't, I can't be this guy too. Cause if I'm Buffalo Bill and I'm Wayne Grow, then I'm this guy. Like I'm, I'm this psychopath for the rest of my life. So please don't. And so then, um, he he was ended up being one of the cops, and they picked the, you know picked Kevin Gage, and I, I I don't have an answer for you, Dan. I don't have an answer. Well, just, uh, uh, I can make or make the prediction that he will be on this podcast because <laughs> I know he's been on the Con Air podcast. Well, this is what we've discovered, and I think we've got the email address for him. So <laughs> my fingers are, my fingers are crossed oh, that man. will happen. Oh look, I would I would be I would adore to chat to him because literally. He could do like with with this much with this kind of role where he's having to act across from like the likes of De Niro and do this stuff, and then he's there with William Fickner. Like this guy should have been in fifty movies, like fifty movies after this. Like it's it's a travesty. Well, when it happens, delete this minute and get him <laughs> to do this minute again because it's amazing. Oh look, I might yeah, I, I might have to get him to reflect back on a minute. But there's more Wayne Grow to come. There's some really there's a, good... There is more Wayne Grow. I mean, some, you know, we don't have to do spoiler alerts in this podcast because everyone's seen the film, I'm guessing, a couple of times. <laughs> he doesn't turn up for another 40 minutes. Yes. He turns up with Van Zandt. Um, and then, I believe, well, and then, like, from now, it's a full hour and a half until his final, well, his final final. His final final. 
Yeah, it's like it's it's minutes before the ending, but, but when we see when we see him, it's like a hundred and whatever, one hundred and sixty, one hundred fifty five minutes in, is that that final bit? Yeah, like that's the that's the real art of this movie, right? Because he makes such an impact, and he's in four such scenes, an impact, and he's in he's in very brief, really amazing scenes. Yeah, that's what I got here. Oh man. And this bar, I, don't, doesn't, isn't it even more disturbing that he just is casually just smoking a cigarette at a bar? Like, it's just it. he's so cool about it. There's no problem. Well, that's the other thing is that there's, there's a, a movie motif of people having cigarettes after sex. Yeah. Uh, and, and for this guy, I, I think the death is the sex. Yeah, it's not the sex. It's no. not the sex that happens before. It's, the, it's, it's what he's doing. But that's why, you know, that's why he's so relaxed and so cool and in the bar and just looking for his next. So the amazing thing you get if you listen to the Michael Mann commentary of kind of the Wayne Gross scenes and and of this scene is he describes him as a shot caller. And what he's really saying about him is he is someone who is big noting himself in the criminal world, who thinks he's bigger than he is. And you notice this when he goes to Van Zandt 40 minutes later and Van Zandt's trapped in his office. He's been there for three weeks, you know, um, (laughs) And he says, oh, I've got some moves I can make. You know, so he he's, believes he's a player in this world when really to the professional criminals, he's lit an irritant they were going to put in a boot. Yeah. Uh, save for a random patrol car, uh, he'd be a dead man already. Um, so it's really interesting when you think of him in that way as someone who believes they have more impact than they really do when really he's just uh, a homicidal psychopath, really, just just rolling through LA. And and that's the delu- like that's the real sort of psychopathic element because he can he can actually funk that's that like high functioning sociopath or high functioning psychopath that they call like in sort of modern parlance of psychology and, and criminology. It's like he can he can hold his criminal jobs, like he can go in and do stuff, but his impulses then to like satisfaction like to kill or to do something like that he it, usually keep him there and i love how he said he's like he was a criminal irritant that's exactly what he is and in this scene again like if these people knew how he got off he would already have been put down by almost everyone who employed him like neil didn't know that he was a psychopath serial killer neil just knew that he was a psycho who couldn't hold down the job and then therefore he's an irritant enough to get rid of so yeah, when he's just sort of sitting in here, you know, passively drinking a beer, saying, I'm a cowboy, it's just like, oh, it's just even, it's, you know, how, how do you go and have a job interview after what you've just done? Like, so casually <laughs> sipping a beer. You've reminded me that it's not just him at the hotel that does Neil in. The bit that undoes all of them is that in the initial Armagard heist, uh, the homeless man hears him say, slick, he can't hear you because yeah. the security guards. He can't, guards can't fucking hear. You. See that thing coming out of his ear, slick. He can't hear you. He can't hear. Um, and that's the bit that does them in. Um, while I'm on the opening scene, I should say I spoke to Peter Ryan, who's a very senior ABC business journalist. He was a correspondent in Washington DC at the time. He saw the film. They're in a massive multiplex, you know, that they have in the DC suburbs. Saw the film. Loved it so much. They were half an hour in after the first scene and he realised, oh, they're showing this in multiple cinemas. Went to the one that was just starting so we could see the opening scene again. <laughs> and then watched the whole film again. 
Stop. Okay. That, now that's dedication. That is serious dedication to go. I love that opening high so much. I'm going to go to the. I'm in the eight thirty, but I'm going to go to the nine o'clock. That's fantastic. Yeah. I've never yeah. done that before. I've never done. I've never done that before. Maybe with heat, I would have. Maybe I would have jumped to the beginning <laughs> scene. It's so it's good. It's got to be kind of opening weekend of a very big film to yes. be able to pull it off, but yeah. you can do it. You can. We're not encouraging it. We're not encouraging it. Sorry, I just want to say <laughs> One Heat Minute is not encouraging skipping into the next cinema to watch the opening scene unless that movie is playing Heat. So that is where we have our full endorsement. You know, Michael Mann might have a 25th anniversary edition coming out, in which case, more power to you, right? 2020, it's all you. <laughs> um, yeah, like... Uh, Oh, that's that's so good. Yeah, I I, I keep uh, what I keep going back to with this movie is I have I've had really uh, I've had really specific things where I go that's the turning point or that's the turning point and that's the turning point. And what I keep now feeling is as I have new people to talk to like you, Dan, is I I keep feeling like what what that moment does with Slick is like someone clicking a domino it's like which then makes you do this which then makes you do this which then makes you do this which then and it's all these little and it's the lovely interconnectedness of this movie that sort of warrants its running time you know because you know you know 170 minute movie 76 speaking roles across you know the sprawling la landscape uh, as much an LA movie as it is anti LA because it doesn't look like any other LA movie that's set there um I just keep going like he, he's he's got like this weird he's like a pestilence like he comes in at the beginning and then he's infecting threads of this story um, and increasingly it's like uh, it's it's also and it's it's in an upcoming podcast so I don't want to sort of spoil it too much but I I'm starting to see connections between characters that I didn't think had had connections and like this moment triggers. I guess the connection, the real connection between kind of Wanger and Vincent. Um, and it's because of what we're about to see. So it's this really strange, like characters that don't seem like they're connected are very connected. Um, uh, and, and sometimes they're connected in this like real dark way, but like this movie doesn't work at all without him being so engaging, terrifying, slippery um and yeah just like like a shot caller who's slippery enough to get through some of these hairy situations because if he hadn't have run and got out of there it's probably not his first time running <laughs> I, love to, I love to think of that when the characters get away or something like uh, oh it's not his first time he was in chicago or something he's already run away from some other crook who wanted to kill him um he's just given himself this name and he just runs into the next town and you know starts up all over again well that's the really amazing bit about when he finally meets his end where Vincent wants to see his eyes. He wants to see him look and he shoots him in the chest so he can live for just that <laughs> second longer to really get it. Like it, it's just intense and having rewatched it and I haven't seen it for a couple of years. I've got the DVD and I've got the Blu-ray and, you know, popped it on occasionally. Um, what stuck me with just that intensity, as well as so many of the lines just flooding back. Like I knew all the dialogue in this movie, even though I hadn't seen it yeah. for so long. All you need, see, Dan, this oh. is why you need. This is why we need to be friends after the podcast. What happens is, in just texts when you check in with your mates, you just check in with them like you're talking heat dialogue. That's what happened. That's this is this is the next logical step where you go down the rabbit hole thing. A true obsessive is like when you send an email. 
you're just like you, you know um, a, a, a friend of the show, dear friend Anthony Morris, an Australian filmmaker, a re- an exceptionally talented Australian filmmaker who made an amazing film called The Palace, a short film, which is at the Sydney Film Festival, is where I met him. He's currently making a movie called Hotel Mumbai. Um, and oh, wow. yeah, of course, of course, I know. So, you. so that so that's coming out. He's he's a director and and very funny guy, um, and. I don't think I've ever sent him a text or an email that has not just been a line of heat. Like, you know, like, you know, and I'm like, you know, it might just be like, Hey man, you know, this, you know, this editing of feature films, that regular type life, that your life, you know, like just everything, everything has to be that because otherwise what's the point? This is what's been so wonderful meeting you and, and talking about this is like for so long, I thought it was just me, you know I mean? I could tell, you know, I, I could tell the dark night. I could tell, you know, there was all these things. But it was actually recently I saw Jordan Peele's f- film Keanu. Yes. Um, which is where he is. Uh, is it Cat? Yes, his cat, cat's named cat Keanu. Cat gets kidnapped yep. by gangsters. And anyway, <laughs> anyway, and he's setting his cat up like dressing up with masks and stuff like all these famous films. And the first one is Heat. And yep. I thought... It can't just be me. Like, that is no. definitely heat. It like, is. That is. You know, and to see it in this comedy movie, you're like, okay, well, this is, it's clearly, I'm not alone here. This is, uh, you know. And look, I hope he's listening. There are, the direct- there are more better known movie images, you know, than this than film. But what I was going to say to you is, and this is where you've you've just gone round full circle to another person who's a who's a, a tangential friend of the show, is that Peter Atencio, who directed a stack, he directed John Clam, uh, John Claude Van Johnson, which is the sort of Van Damme satire that's on Amazon at the moment. He directed Keanu, and he directed a stack of the Key and Peele show when it was on Comedy Central. Peter Atencio is actually listened to this podcast. He has listened to it because he is such a fan of Heat. So you hit it right on the head. It's like you were watching his movie and he did a stupid throwaway joke about Heat because he loves it. And and that probably that joke was only there to serve him. Like it was only there to serve him. Probably wasn't in Jordan Peele's original list because they, they wrote it. It wasn't his original list to, you know, do it. But Peter Tench is like, nah, if you're dressing up a kitty cat, I want to see the kitty cat dressed up in Heat and that's what I want for me. Because that'll make me yeah. chuckle when I watch this every all over. And you know, I, I I think I think it's starting to get the recognition now. A, a lot of it, and you know, Christopher Nolan. There's not a there's probably not a more Michael Mann gushing fanboy than Christopher Nolan. And in my mind, he's made he's made two movies that are so intrinsically connected to Heat. The first one is obviously The Dark Knight, which is one of the biggest movies and has one of the most rabid followings of all time and it's deserved it, but it's like, it's, and this is why obviously probably you and I both like this movie. It's just Heat with Batman and the Joker. And so it's like, okay, of course this is going to be awesome. It's Heat with Batman and the Joker. And so you can sort of get those other characters in there and do it and, and, and it follows the superhero tropes. It's very much that. And also the, the, the one film that if I'd ever got a chance, and this is another one of my like amazing dreams for this show, is like obviously I want the show to end talking to Michael Mann. I'm throwing it out there in the universe more and more now. Michael Mann for the last episode. Um, but, I don't think it would be his first appearance. I think he'd come in earlier and oh, come back for the Iowa mate, Union mate, show. Mate, I would love... <laughs> oh, you're so, you're so nice to say that, Dan. But, but what I would say is I'd love to talk to Christopher Nolan because insomnia in so many ways with Pacino, he feels like the broken-down career-ended Vincent Hanna who 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 has so, got such a strict moral code about doing the right thing 
But then in the sort of Christopher Nolan verse, all these guys who sort of as, you know, really have characteristics where they just lie to themselves, you know, to dress up like a bat or to trick people into dreaming weird things, etc. But he kind of made this Vincent Hanna at the end of his life um, movie. And I, so a couple of times I've done the double feature watching Heat and Insomnia and I'm like, oh my God, if this guy's name was Vincent, I wish that it was, but it's not. But if it was, it's literally like a Heat, it could be a Heat sequel. So yeah, that's another one where I think there's some, you know, people who are huge Nolan fans because he's got such a rabid fan base are starting to go back and like look at his influences and go, oh man, look at Heat. It's just, well, yeah, it's the Dark Knight. Well, something for everyone listening to think about is obviously very into Heat is that uh, I was at my uh, uncle's 60th birthday a few years ago and he made a short speech and he's a great photographer. And so we knew there'd be a bit of a slide night. And great. Uh, I, I love him dearly, but he's his own man. In the whole hour of slides, there was a couple of photos of the family. Um, for example, like no photos of their wedding or, you know, anything like that. And a few photos of the high country that he likes to uh, hike in. But it was largely photos of fungi, which is his, he's really into photographing fungi. So we sat there for an hour and we watched it. It was very, very interesting. Iridescent algae. Is that what you were saying in your head the whole time? Exactly, the whole time. And so my 40th was coming up and I did think like, oh, I could make a short speech and then say, thanks all for coming. You know, I, I love you all. It's really lovely to see you. There will now be a three-hour presentation. <laughs> you're all trapped here. Uh, we're going to watch it and you're going to enjoy it. Yeah, look, I mean, I mean, you've already given me an idea for my 40th. I, think, I don't think <laughs> there's anything more appropriate. I think it should be for every birthday, every birthday. Not- not to hold it in the cinema, not to give people any idea, just to get them along as though it's going to be a party. Oh, of course. Uh, and, and then take say, a seat. Please take a seat. <laughs> uh, look, actually, go to the toilet. Go to the bathroom first. That's a good idea. Yeah. Um, no, I don't think that's a bad idea at all. I think it's a fantastic <laughs> idea. I think anyone who's listening to this show will be absolutely 100% on board with it. Oh, man. It's so good. Look, Dan... Um, this has been amazing and I really appreciate we've been able to finally we've brought some levity we, we talked about the yucky stuff in this minute but I appreciate that we've been able to have a chuckle as well um, guys Dan at Dan Ziffer on the Twitter um, he's all over the ABC you only need to go to abcnews.com.au um, and just type in Dan Ziffer if you want to read any of his tales um, of the Royal Commission he's embedded in at the moment and uh, and uh, absolutely slaying so thank you there Dan um, guys I've as always been Blake Howard uh, thank you so much for listening subscribing rating reviewing um, and retweeting us is huge because that's how I get to meet great guests like Dan um, so thank you um, as well um, thank you to Garth Franklin for our web design thank you to Paul Davies for our theme which is going to be blasting at the Sydney Film Festival Hub on Saturday night at 7pm and thank you Dan so much for being a part of One Heat Minute Mate, a joy. More strength to your arm. I'll be here every minute. (laughs) Thanks, Dan. Thanks, guys. Catch you next time.